Well, let's get your Bibles out. We are in the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 4 this morning. And some of you knew it when I said we were going to be doing a journey through the book of Daniel. You knew that at one point it was going to get weird. And we are in Daniel chapter 4 this morning. And Daniel chapter 4 is the inspiration for this famous print Uh, by the British artist William Blake, and it is a picture of a Babylonian king who is suffering from a rare depressive illness known as boanthropy. Boanthropy is a documented psychological disorder in which a person deludedly believes that they are a cow and seeks to live and act accordingly, to which I say, So, but don't check out. It's undoubtedly a strange story, but it contains incredible lessons for us because I think this text has something to teach us about what it looks like to love our enemies. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus presents his followers with one of his most difficult invitations. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Jesus here is expanding on the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor. But he's not simply saying, just love your neighbor. He's calling us to love our persecutors as God has loved us. To love and to demonstrate to them grace, the same grace that God shows to those who oppose him. And the Apostle Paul is going to expand upon this in his letter to the Romans. He writes this to the church. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul's words there actually locate us back into the narrative of Daniel. Because if you remember, Daniel was a prisoner of war. He was an exile living in a foreign land. He was a slave who was compelled to serve those who conquered his nation and, and wiped his country off the map. And I'm sure he yearned for vengeance, for, for retribution, for justice. But we've learned that God has sent Daniel to Babylon, to the pagan capital, to be a blessing. The Lord had said, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So Daniel must trust that, trust God to make everything new and right and beautiful once again. 
He's called to seek his enemy's welfare, to overcome evil with good. Why? One, it's Christ's command. But two, what do we read? In so doing, you'll heap burning coals on their head. What does that mean? It doesn't sound kind, but it implies that showing someone inexplicable kindness, showing someone God-echoing grace, may serve to kindle in someone who is your opponent this burning remorse that might lead them to repentance. Loving one's enemies is appropriate, not just because judgment is the Lord's responsibility, not ours, but it's also appropriate because it may have the effect of turning someone's heart. Call it hopelessly naive, but this is the clear teaching of Jesus. This is his divine wisdom, which is hard. Okay, so let's see how this works in Daniel chapter 4. We're going to pick up the narrative in verse 1 this morning, and unexpectedly, we're going to be eavesdropping. We're going to be actually reading a letter that's not written by Daniel, but that's written by Nebuchadnezzar. And here is what we read. This is King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. If you've been paying attention these last couple weeks, this doesn't sound like the Nebuchadnezzar we know. This doesn't sound like the guy who threatened to murder all of his advisors if they couldn't tell him his dream. Doesn't sound like the tyrant that asked all of his administrators to bow down and worship a golden image of himself or be burned alive. This man sounds friendly. He sounds God-fearing. He sounds reverent. What do we do with that? Well, I have a couple ideas, a couple initial thoughts. One, this might be a different Nebuchadnezzar. The Nebuchadnezzar we meet at the beginning of the book of Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar II. And he's Nebuchadnezzar II not because his dad was Nebuchadnezzar I, but because he has taken upon himself the name of one of ancient Babylon's most famous figures, a mythic warrior king named Nebuchadnezzar. It would be like if uh, a U.S. president started calling themselves George Washington II. It's more of a title than a name. And this was relatively common in the ancient world. In Rome, they took on the name of Julius Caesar, the Caesars, to say that they are standing in his legacy, they are within his dynasty. So this could be a different Nebuchadnezzar. Or maybe this guy is just kind of dressing up history. He thinks of himself a little bit more highly than he ought, so he's making himself look better after the fact. He wants to look less like a psychotic madman and more like a, a wise and pious 
king. So maybe he's just dressing it up for, for posterity's sake. Or maybe the contrast between how he sounds and the, the man we've known is supposed to foreshadow for us this dramatic transformation that is going to take place in his life. But whatever it is, the voice we hear speaking doesn't match the character we've seen so far in Daniel. And as we continue the narrative, we discover that Nebuchadnezzar has had an unsettling dream. And it's a dream about a great tree that is cut down on the command of an angelic figure. It's a fitting text for us because we're actually going to be having to take down one of our trees on our campus that's diseased this week. So it felt unusually timely. And the wise men are summoned, but no one can explain to the king what his dream means. So the king sends for Daniel. And we're going to pick the story up in verse 18. Nebuchadnezzar says, This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, Belshazzar is Daniel's pagan name, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me, the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Nebuchadnezzar's learning There's no need for threats of torture. Just call Daniel. Daniel's tapped in to the heavenly realm. He can provide insight when others can't. But his kind of response to this opportunity is a bit shocking. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The king can tell by Daniel's reaction that this is bad news. Daniel is visibly pained and and distressed. He says, I wish this dream had come to one of your rivals, not to you. And I too hate to be the bearer of hard news to my friends. But Nebuchadnezzar isn't Daniel's friend. He's his enemy, his enslaver, the representative of the pagan empire which destroyed everything he knew and loved. And Daniel sees suffering on the horizon for this man and he chooses to sympathize with him, to suffer with him. Daniel in this moment is other-focused. He's not calculating how he'll benefit or lose advantage from what God has foretold. He's, He's concerned with the broken human being that's standing right in front of him. Daniel is God's gift to this pagan king. He's a conduit of light in the midst of his darkness and fears and Daniel gets to show the kindness of God to this man by giving him truth and clarity in his dilemma. We read verse 20, The tree you saw 
which grew and became strong so that its top reached to the heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a brand, band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. Let's try to wrap our minds around that. Nebuchadnezzar dreams of this cosmic tree at the center of the universe. This is kind of a common motif in mythology. It's this tree whose roots go into the earth and and are fed by like a, a subterranean ocean. And the upper branches touch the clouds. It's It's a world tree. It's something that binds together heaven and earth and the underworld. And we see that all flesh, all of creation finds nourishment and abundance and rest in the shade of this tree. But then we also realize, oh, here's the sociopathic narcissist that we know and love. Because Nebuchadnezzar is thinking of himself as the tree. He is dreaming of himself as the very center of the universe, which is arrogant. But it also explains why this dream of a tree getting chopped down is so disturbing to him. He's not a tree hugger. He identifies with being the tree. And the king sees in his dream something called a watcher pronounce judgment. And I don't want to get too technical, but in ancient Jewish thinking, the, the watchers were this class of supernatural beings. They're these angels that are part of kind of God's heavenly court, part of his divine council that have responsibility for, for governing the nations. And, and Ever since the Tower of Babel, when God kind of disinherits the nations and chooses Israel. And and these watchers, some of them are faithful stewards. They're trying to utilize their divinely given authority well. But some of them uh, turn demonic. But the long and short of all of that is that this heavenly messenger comes down and says, you know what? Let's get chopping. The tree needs to come down. And there's some interesting little details here. I don't entirely know what to do with the band of iron and bronze that's around the tree. Is that restraint? Is that like putting a handcuff on a tree? Or is it something else? I'm thinking, as we think about our tree that has to come down, the arborist wants to grind down the stump so that nothing of that tree remains. But here... It's almost as if the, the stump is protected. It's bound so that it will not wholly disintegrate. Because God is not done with the stump. 
He doesn't want it to disappear. He is seeking to preserve it. Okay, now, Daniel gives the interpretation to this dream. He helps explain what it all means in verse 24. He says, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, moo, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules and the kingdom rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So Daniel's saying, you're going to lose your kingdom. You're going to lose your sanity. You're going to be ostracized and driven from polite society. Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to actually turn beastly. You're going to regress to almost this, almost this primitive form of humanity. And this is going to be like this for seven periods of time. What does that mean? In Jewish thought, seven is the number of completion. Daniel's saying it is going to take as long as it needs to for you to realize that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. But if you repent of your pride, if you acknowledge God's authority, your position will be restored. God needs Nebuchadnezzar to know, hey, buddy, I rule the world, not you. Yes, my kingdom will come, but I'm also king right now. I rule in Babylon. I rule in China. I rule in Jerusalem. I rule here. Not you, not your gods. I alone. And my rule is particular and it's, it's free. I direct the destiny of nations. I appoint rulers as I see fit. I put them into office and I take them from office. I can make a servant the king and I can make the king a servant. I am supreme. So don't get too big for your britches, Nebuchadnezzar. Don't be, I'm Mr. the center of the universe. I'm the one around whom everything spins That's nonsense, God says. I am the center of the universe, not you. And Daniel knows we all face a choice, each and every one of us. And it's this humility before God or the humiliation of our pride. We face the choice, humility before God or the humiliation of our pride. And so Daniel presents this choice to the king. Verse 27, he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel's going above and beyond here. He's not merely sharing God's word. He's Choosing to love his enemy. I don't sense any gloating or glee 
in Daniel. He could have chosen a different path. He could have been like my favorite characters in my favorite Christmas movie, which is actually a Muppet's Christmas Carol. And my favorite characters are Statler and Waldorf, the old grumpy heckling guys from the balcony. Do you remember how they shared that kind of heavenly judgment that came to Ebenezer Scrooge? They said, doomed Scrooge. You're doomed for all time. Your future is a horror story written by your crimes. Your chains are forged by what you say and do. So have your fun. This life is done. A nightmare waits for you. I love that movie. <laughs> it's a great one. Best version of uh, Christmas Carol ever. And I know they're Muppets, but it actually feels like the more human response to go, you're doomed, buddy. <laughs> right? It's, they have this uh, glee to announce to an enemy that you're getting what you've deserved. And that's how maybe the prophet Jonah would have done it. You remember in the book of Jonah? He's like, you've got a date with pain, suckers. 40 days and then destruction. And that's not how Daniel acts. That's not how Daniel carries himself in this moment. He, he doesn't just report doom. He connects and then he corrects. He invites Nebuchadnezzar to change directions. He presents him with a choice. He says, this isn't set in stone, my king. You can choose to live differently, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly before God. And I'm just astounded by Daniel's character here. He built trust with Nebuchadnezzar. He chose to be patient and kind. He experienced empathy. He chose to potentially waste his time with this arrogant and set-in-his-ways king. Daniel stands in the gap between his God and, and this pagan ruler. He, he does this for a man who has harmed him in his past. Daniel chooses to display, to be this living enactment of God's power and presence for the king. He says, don't you remember the times when my God revealed things that only the creator could reveal? Don't you remember the time when my God preserved and rescued my friends from your fiery furnace? My God is real. And he... He helps the king understand how God is moving in his life. He frames it. He, he presents this opportunity to choose life, to choose wholeness, to opt for God's best for him and for his kingdom. Daniel loves his enemy by holding on to hope for his ultimate restoration. What a gift to give someone. We can steward hope 
for their ultimate restoration. No one is too far for Christ's rescue. No one is past the point of repentance. No one is so hopelessly lost that God cannot make them new by His transforming power. Daniel loves his enemy by holding on to hope against everything he's seen so far from this person. He's holding on to hope for his ultimate restoration. That's powerful. And that is costly. So this dream comes, Daniel gives its meaning to the king, and then God gives Nebuchadnezzar a year to process the dream and to make his choice. But this is what we read in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built? By my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. He's still the tree at the center of the earth. And he's like, look at me. This is all about me. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, There fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. That's vivid language, huh? Nebuchadnezzar is transforming before our eyes from a man into this composite figure. He's Now he's metaphorically part man, part ox, part eagle. But I also sense an undercurrent of grace here. This is ancient Iraq. It is a dry and thirsty land. But for seven years out in the wilderness, his body was wet with the dew of heaven. What did Jesus say about his father's heart? For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He makes, he sends rain on the just and the unjust. He's experiencing divine care and grace even in the midst of his exile. And just like that banded stump was preserved from disintegration, God is protecting the king in his madness and providing for his needs. And then we read in verse 34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, 
And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures for generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble Consider Nebuchadnezzar's restoration here. I sense a genuine change in attitude. Sure, his his pride has been humiliated, but this sounds like a man who's chosen humility. He lifts his eyes to heaven. He blesses the Most High. This isn't someone's disgruntled surrender to someone who is stronger than them. He is giving praise. He's voluntarily honoring the true Lord of the world. And not only is his sanity miraculously restored, but the movers and the shakers of Babylon come out into the wilderness and they plead with him to again take his throne Which to me says this has to be the hand of God because no rational person says, you know who we need calling all the shots in our country? The dude who thought he was a cow for seven years, right? Vote Moo 2024. (laughs) It all seems fantastical, doesn't it? It is, strains our ability to believe it. You would think that if the most powerful man in the world had a mental breakdown and then reclaimed his throne after converting to another religion, everyone would know about it. There would be some record noting how crazy this all was. Right? Well, before the the Lord grabbed hold of me and said, you're going to be a pastor instead of a study instead of a historian. I was on my way to being a historian. So I dug into some history this week, which was tons of fun. And in 1947, archaeologists discovered fragments of an ancient document that was written in Aramaic, and it's called the Prayer of Nabonidus. It's just a scrap but it tells the story of a guy named Nabonidus who was the last emperor of Babylon. He was Nebuchadnezzar II's son-in-law. And this scrap of parchment tells of a Babylonian king who falls ill and lives isolated in the wilderness of Arabia at this oasis called Tema for seven years. And then he returns to power a convinced monotheist. This is a little bit from that scrap. Words and prayer said by Nabonidus, king of Babylonia, the great king, when afflicted with an ulcer, if you call that an ulcer, on the command of the most high God in Tema, 
I, Nabonidus, was afflicted for seven years, and far from men I was driven until I prayed to the Most High God, and an exorcist pardoned my sins. He was a Jew from among the children of the exile of Judah, and said, recount this in writing to glorify and exalt the name of the Most High God. Then I wrote this, when I was afflicted for seven years by the Most High God with an evil ulcer during my stay at Tema, I prayed to the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone and lime, because I thought and considered them gods. And then the parchment disintegrates. They also in 1847, or 1879, discovered in the excavation of ancient Babylon this little clay cylinder called the Cyrus Cylinder, and it has this document in cuneiform written on it. And that document also talks about this guy named Nabonidus. But it tells about his battles with the Babylonian clergy. It talks about how he changed his empire's worship, how he stopped them from worshiping their national deity, Marduk. And it says something to the effect of he introduced improper, a counterfeit, improper to them, this unholy display, and they they bemoan the fact that their gods were angry because their emperor turned them into the worship of another god, one god who he said truly ruled the world. So what does this all mean? Besides, it gets me excited as a historian. It means that there are extra biblical sources that confirm the the broad strokes of what Daniel records. It means that this strange and crazy story fascinated and puzzled the ancient world as much as it fascinates and puzzles us. Yet despite all the weird, what are our takeaways this morning? I mentioned that we all face that choice, the humility before God or the humiliation of our pride. And that's actually something we're going to dig into even more next week as we continue the story. So I want to focus today on the other great lesson of this text, which is all about how Daniel models for us how to love our enemies. What have we learned? Daniel chooses to love his enemies First, by being a witness of God's light and life and love. He shares with him God's word. He he reveals how God's power is at work in, in Daniel's weakness and brokenness. He helps frame for Nebuchadnezzar how God is moving in his life. He presents to him God's invitation. He gives him the opportunity to live differently, to change directions, to receive God's welcome and grace. Daniel chooses to love his enemy by extending to him what I like to call transformative gospel hospitality. He practices empathy. He sees his enemy as a human being. He willingly engages him in relationship. He chooses to connect before he corrects. He exhibits a kindness that this man did not deserve. Daniel chooses to love his enemy by praying for him, by interceding to God on his behalf. 
Daniel's not simply praying against him, not simply praying that God would rescue him from Nebuchadnezzar. He's praying for the man himself. And Daniel is choosing to love his enemies by holding on to hope for his ultimate restoration. Isn't it amazing that it's Nebuchadnezzar's victim that is the one who's stewarding hope for him? It's not his mom. We expect it to be mom who always hopes. It's his victim. Now, I want you to think of the most difficult person in your life right now. The person you find most vexing. The person who introduces the most challenge or frustration or heartache into your life. And honey, I don't know where you are. If it's me, I'm sorry. Now, imagine that person in your mind's eye. What do they look like? Do they look like a person or are they some composite creature? Maybe a snarling beast with raking claws, maybe a wounded animal lashing out in fear. Do you see just a caveman smashing skulls or a crocodile waiting to devour? Yeah, they're figments of our imagination, but sometimes those visions are accurate. They're truer than what we see in a mirror. At times, our ugliness is real. Now, here's a harder assignment. Dream about what that person could be. In your mind, rehumanize that person. Envision what it would look like if they were to experience the fullness of Jesus' love and rescue. Picture them turning from their sin, finding healing for their brokenness, re- receiving a heart that beats for others, not only for themselves. See the Lord sanding down the rough edges of their personality, of using them to make restitution for the hurt that they have caused. Visualize what it would look like for God to take that kernel of of talent or passion or goodness that is in them and and cultivate it so that they might be a person of blessing. And if you can't imagine a redeemed version of that person, that's okay. Just talk to God about it. Let the Spirit intercede in your weakness. Because as Paul says, for we do not know what to pray as for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. As God's witnesses in disorienting times, God calls us to love our enemies and hold out hope for their ultimate restoration. God invites us to see people as they truly are in their full brokenness and pain, but he also invites us to steward a vision of who they might be by the transforming grace of Jesus. 
And we cling to that vision because it equips us to, to love them well in the present. It also equips us to suffer long in the present. And we also cling to that vision because they might not have access to the hope that we have. Did you ever think about that? We might have more hope for their future than they do. Because we know Jesus, the life giver, the one who breaks the power of evil, sin, and death and makes all things new. So sometimes we are stewarding hope on their behalf. And pray for them. Like Daniel, pray for the most difficult person in your life for as long as it takes. Even if they have a long season of beastliness. And like Daniel, be eager to restore, to be ready to receive them to pardon them, to welcome them home when our hope proves true. Daniel loves his enemy by holding on to hope for his ultimate restoration. Will you commit to pray for the similar sort of restoration and salvation for the most difficult person in your life? If you are, let's start right now. <sighs> Dear God, sometimes I want to get lost in all the weird because it's easier to contemplate a man eating grass in a field than it is to love our enemies. <laughs> Would you help us Steward hope for people, even those who hurt us or have wounded us or have done us wrong in the past. Take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, Jesus. Teach us to love like you love. And we know this is not something you, we can manufacture, God. But it's something that overflows because we've experienced your love for us. While we were still sinners, while we were actively in opposition to you, you died for us. You gave it all that we might be fully restored, that we might have a future and a hope, that we might find healing in our brokenness. Thank you. May that grace never be something we take for granted. And may that grace penetrate deep into our heart and cause it to flow with your love. May we be agents of your transformative gospel hospitality. May we labor in prayer for those who are most difficult because you love them and your love changes everything.
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.